When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Today on Not Sam Wrestling, YouTuber Chris Van Vliet is going to be joining us. We've got to talk about Liv Morgan's new documentary on the WWE Network, and there's a new wave. I'm feeling it. A new wave coming in through the WWE. What is it? Let's talk about it. This is Not Sam Wrestling. This is Not Sam Wrestling. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Not Sam Wrestling. The holidays are approaching. That means Royal Rumble's around the corner. That means WrestleMania's around the corner. Dana Warrior was on the bump. Uh, I don't know if it was this week or the week before. I don't know. I was watching Dana Warrior on the bump, and she was saying that Survivor Series always feels like the, the beginning of WrestleMania season, which people really don't say that. You know, they say the Royal Rumble is the beginning, but I agree with her. I agree with her wholeheartedly. I feel like, and I mean, you can go back and you can look like, you know, Sting, the road to his match at WrestleMania started at Survivor Series that year. Uh, I really think that Survivor Series is it because Survivor Series is so close. When you think about it, even when you're just going by the schedule of the big four, right? Survivor Series, December, one month, then the Royal Rumble. Royal Rumble, two months, plus build towards WrestleMania. So Survivor Series, Royal Rumble, and WrestleMania are all pretty close together. And then SummerSlam ends up kind of being its own island. A few years go by, King of the Ring pops up in June. But I I feel like, yeah, that the Survivor Series is definitely when things, I feel like you're not really thinking about WrestleMania at all before Survivor Series. And then not the build to Survivor Series is not the beginning of the road to WrestleMania. I feel like the Survivor Series event itself and the things that happen at Survivor Series are going to start to shape what the road looks like as we move towards WrestleMania. And I think that's just the timing of it all. But I absolutely feel that way. Uh, before we, uh, So what I'm saying is it's an exciting time. It's starting to get in to that very super exciting time. I hope everybody had a, a great holiday. If you're stateside, I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. Um, we said thank, happy Thanksgiving to the people on Patreon on Friday. We were a day late with Thursday, Not Sam Thursday, the bonus podcast that comes out every week for the Patreon subscribers. But we were still able to spend some time together. So if you weren't there, I'll tell you now. Hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. Um, it was a fun weekend. I don't know if you guys tuned into the Mike Tyson fight that Triller put on. It was Mike Tyson versus Roy Jones Jr., and then it was Logan, not Logan Paul, Jake Paul versus Nate Robinson, who used to be a basketball player. Boxing, 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 boxing. Uh, but I'll say this. As somebody who's not a sports fan, you know, I always find it interesting that there are, like, I think there's a bigger crossover of sports fans to wrestling fans than I realize. Because I just don't look at wrestling the same way I would look at sports. You know, I just, I, I, I feel like it, 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 it stimulates a completely different part of my brain than sports would. Wrestling is storytelling. Wrestling is entertainment to me. It's hella athletic. 
But for me, anyway, the primary is always on presentation and story. Uh, of course, if you don't have the athleticism, you are SOL. But I felt like the Tyson fight, even though, you know, people, there were some people that were making fun of it. I think most people were just excited to see Iron Mike step in the uh, boxing ring again. I know I was. But some people were, were making fun of it as a concept, just the idea that Tyson, I think Tyson is 54 and Roy Jones Jr. is 51. I know that one's 54 and one's 51. I think Tyson's 54. Tyson hasn't fought in 15 years. Roy Jones Jr. has been retired for three. Like, there were people kind of mocking the idea, but, you know, I don't know. They they went in. They had what was basically an exhibition fight, so it's not like they're trying to get uh, in the running for title contention. And boxing is such a wacky sport anyway over the years that I, I don't know if, if you really have to sit there and be worried about the reputation of boxing being on the line. But I actually felt like the Tyson-Roy Jones Jr. show was more along the lines of something that appealed to me as a WWE fan than, certainly than UFC, I think. You know, there was something very sports entertainment about the whole presentation. And it felt like even the people that were not, you know, that were not sitting there rah, rah, rahing it the whole time. Everybody, I, I feel like everybody left satisfied. Nobody walked in thinking they were going to get something and then got the complete opposite. It felt like everybody who walked in looking for something got basically what they were looking for. They got entertainment, is my point. And... I thought it was really cool. You know, the presentation was good. The production was very slick. They didn't seem to have any timing issues. Everything looked cool. They actually, you know, I, I it probably wouldn't be the worst idea. I don't think it would work in the Thunderdome. And I think the Thunderdome, honestly, I think the Thunderdome, when you look at live, what was at one point live entertainment, uh, kind of adapting to what we're living through right now in this pandemic, I think the Thunderdome is the sort of high watermark. The Thunderdome is amazing, I feel like. The the WWE product, when you look at it pre-Thunderdome and current Thunderdome, it's night and day. You can't go back and watch any of that stuff that was in the, in the Performance Center. You just can't. Even NXT has made huge, huge strides with the way they've transferred that building over to the Capitol Wrestling Center. I actually think... It's it it's it's a it, the vibe is much better now that it looks the way it looks even on NXT. But you know it it it, it was pretty cool having the lights super low to the ring so that when rounds were up they changed colors and the whole ring would turn pink. And, and you know it's just it, the big screen around it and everything. They didn't try to pretend that there were people in there. They just instead did what you know we talk about on this podcast a lot, which was deal with the reality and find the positives, right? Instead of making it seem like, oh, this is a terrible thing that happened and we're just going to have to deal with it. It was, okay, well, let's deal with what's happening and turn it into something cool, like do something unique that we wouldn't have done if a whole bunch of people had been there. Uh, so I thought the presentation was really cool. Even the musical acts. Like at first I was like, I don't know. I didn't know that there were going to be musical acts. So when I turned on the pay-per-view and Wiz Khalifa was doing like 15 minutes, I was like, I mean, I like Wiz. It's fun to see those hits. I like that they were showing love to an era in music that doesn't get a lot of love shown to it. 
It was very funny watching people being like, I, you know, older people going like, I just don't get this new hip hop. And I was like, these songs are like five to 10 years old. Like, what are you talking about? Um, but I thought once I got the vibe of the show where I realized like, oh, they're completely sterilizing the ring between each fight. So they're doing like a mini concert. They'd Wiz Khalifa, French Montana. I was like, that was great. It was very cool to hear Mauro Ronaldo. If you've missed Mauro Ronaldo on the call, Mauro did the whole pay-per-view. Um, and I will tell you this, I, I discovered maybe my favorite commentary duo of all time is Mauro Ronaldo and Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg, I, you talk about somebody shining on that pay-per-view. I think Tyson came off pretty good. I think Roy Jones Jr. came off pretty good in the sense that they both were able to go eight two-minute rounds. They were exhausted, but they were still fighting by the end of it. They were both in, in decent shape for the age that they're at. You know, I, I don't see how you could be what you would expect that would leave you disappointed about that. But Snoop Dogg, he gets on commentary for the Jake Paul fight. The Jake Paul fight lasts two rounds. And Jake Paul not, knocks Nate Robinson out, like puts him to sleep. It was meme-worthy. It's become a, a massive meme. The Nate Robinson challenge has been dominating social media since Sunday. So Snoop Dogg's on commentary for that, and he's just masterful. He's incredible. After that, he goes out and he does, a, you know, a 15-minute concert. All hits, 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 hits. It was like you're watching his side of that Versus show. And then he comes back to also do commentary for the main event. I kind of feel like they heard him in that Jake Paul fight, and then he went and did his concert, and they were like, dude, we need more. Like, people are going crazy for Snoop Dogg, and they did the smart thing, and they put him right back in that commentary booth because he was great, man. He was great. But I had a really fun time watching it, and I didn't necessarily think I was going to. I was ready. I spent 50 bucks on it. And I was ready to feel like I'd gotten ripped off. There are pay-per-views, you know, like uh, there are some UFC pay-per-views. Since I'm not a specific MMA fan, I like entertainment, but there are some UFC pay-per-views where I leave going, you know, I didn't need to spend that money. Sometimes I'm like, I'm glad I'm there. I'm glad I saw that live. But there are, there are UFC pay-per-views where I'm like, I, I wish I hadn't spent that money. And I hate that feeling. Maybe it's maybe maybe I come off as, uh, as as thrifty, but I hate that feeling of of spending. I don't mind spending money on something that I, that has value to me, but I hate the feeling of thinking that money has been thrown in a garbage can, and that'll happen on pay per view for sure. This one I was prepared for that. I thought I might feel that way after this show, and I didn't. I felt like I got my money's worth, so it was very entertaining. But maybe I I was just in a good mood. You know, I, 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 so I went into the weekend in a good mood because SmackDown ended on a good note. And you know what I've said a million times on this podcast that I love wrestling. Wrestling is, professional wrestling is my passion. It makes me feel a certain kind of way. When I, when wrestling is good, it puts me in a good mood. I go, oh my God, because to me, when wrestling is good, it's the greatest form of entertainment in the world. There's n literally nothing better. And when wrestling is bad, I'm in a rotten mood. I, I, I'm, I, I get in a really bad place because I know how good wrestling can be. So when it's not, I get upset. I get pissed. I get annoyed. I get hopeless. It's ridiculous, the things that it makes me feel. 
But Friday SmackDown, I left SmackDown going like, I'm feeling real good about wrestling. And then Saturday morning, I woke up. I'm drinking my coffee. I drank a lot of it, I think, really quickly. And this video pops up. I hadn't watched Talking Smack, but this video pops up on my timeline. And it's like a six-minute video of Paul Heyman and Kevin Owens talking to each other. And they were like, look, this is awesome. I was like, what? So I clicked it. And I watched Paul Heyman and Kevin Owens on Talking Smack and just went, oh, my God. What are we on the cusp of? What are we about to see here in WWE? I thought it was enough that SmackDown ended on such a high note. But for them to then go on to Talking Smack and take it up notches? Okay. And then I start really thinking about, like, what am I into, you know? On, 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 we end up talking about NXT a lot on the Patreon-only show on Thursday, not Sam Thursday, just because it's on Thursday. So I come on Thursday, and that's what's top of mind for me. But over the last few weeks, watching the storylines blossom in NXT, this is 100% War Games, which is on Sunday, is the takeover that I've been most excited about by a mile since the pandemic started. I am more excited about war games by a mile than I was about TakeOver in your house, than I was about uh, TakeOver 30. Like, I, I'm more excited. I am more excited about this show than I have been about any NXT show since the pandemic started. And that's because, not just because of the Capitol Wrestling Center and how I feel more engaged when I'm watching the show from the Capitol Wrestling Center, but it's because... Everything going into this pay-per-view is so rich with stories. I feel like we we hit on something right around Halloween Havoc for NXT that has given us a month straight of shows where you're not only getting story between characters, but you're looking at elevation of characters. I, the, the last eight weeks or so, it has just been the story of Shotzi Blackheart and watching this superstar go from, oh, she's interesting, to this is the future of the NXT women's division. You know, it's watching great matches like Io Shirai and Rhea Ripley, and then seeing that Rhea doesn't get the job done, and this thing that we all foresaw since April is not actually happening because things have changed, and, and things are evolving and moving. Watching the stuff between the Undisputed Era and their gradual good guy turn, and we all thought, oh, of course, they're going to break up. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. Not yet. Maybe they will, but they're not doing it now. They're going into war games. The Pat McAfee promos have been great. All the all the people around Pat McAfee. Because Pat McAfee, he, I mean, he's very entertaining, but he's also a joke, right? So seeing Pete Dunne and Oni Lorcan and Danny Birch get that spotlight because they can stand behind McAfee running his mouth and then... Show us something amazing in the ring. Awesome. The Gargano stuff has all been great. Kevin Owens was an all-star on commentary on Wednesday. You know, I mean, I talked to Bob, the Leon Ruff stuff. I love the Leon Ruff stuff that's going on on NXT right now. And that's because they didn't go where I thought they were going to go. Like, I, at first, when Leon Ruff first won the North American title, I was very skeptical. I was like, it kind of feels like you're using your championship as a prop 
And NXT hasn't done that before. In the sense that they they did not do anything to make it seem like Leon Ruff was not a total joke. They made it seem like some jabron had won the North American Championship on the first episode. But like a, like a, like a fan, like somebody who actually enjoys this stuff, I gave it time. And a week later, they're telling the story. The last two episodes of NXT, they've been making Leon Ruff seem like, oh, as unlikely as it was, he is a hell of a competitor. He is the type of guy that you should take seriously. It all changed for me when he stood up to Damian Priest. When he stood up to him and said, I'm not a joke. Like, I get that you think this is funny, that you're making Johnny Gargano lose to me. But Johnny Gargano should lose to me. I'm not a joke. And he's still intimidated, right? He still doesn't know if he has what it takes to defeat Johnny Gargano and Damian Priest. But there's a big difference between the one, two, three kid and James Ellsworth. And that's not taking anything away from James Ellsworth. You know, James Ellsworth performed in the role that James Ellsworth was was required to perform in. James Ellsworth was super successful in the WWE. But the one, two, three kid was different. The one, two, three kid was a guy who you didn't expect to win. But once he did win, he made you start looking at him. And then it became this like, oh, this is an underdog who's actually really good, who's actually capable of winning. And that's Leon Ruff. And that's why I love the Leon Ruff story so much. And, and you know, I'm super pumped about uh, about the triple threat. I think that, that they should do a thing where Damian Priest spends all his time focusing on Gargano. He knocks Gargano out, throws him out of the ring. He's, like, laughing at him. And then Leon Ruff rolls up Damian Priest, pins him one, two, three. And Leon Ruff retains the North American Championship by pinning Damian Priest. And Damian Priest is a good guy, so he just needs to learn the lesson there. Instead of sitting there and going, like, getting pissed and, like, destroying things, he goes, you got me. You got me, kid. Good for you. Good for you. But so that's what's going on on NXT. Then I started thinking about Raw and SmackDown, and I'm like, okay, you know, plenty of segments have been hit or miss on Raw forever. But, like, even now. But I'm sitting there and I'm watching Raw, right? And and I'm realizing that there are... I'm not blanking out on most of the segments. I'm not looking for other things to do while most of the segments are on. I'm sitting there and I'm going like, I am very interested in Drew McIntyre. Very interested. I want to know who the number one contender is because I'm compelled by Drew McIntyre. He, I, I feel like had taken a couple missteps in his rivalry with Randy Orton, although the rivalry with Randy Orton was great, and that rivalry made me super interested in Randy Orton. Randy Orton working at an all-time high right now. But Drew, I felt like because he wasn't getting decisive, decisive victories, made me go, oh, is this the guy? But watching the build-up to Survivor Series, watching him at Survivor Series, watching him since Survivor Series, I'm like, hell yes, he is the guy. Yes. Not only is he the guy, but as I said last week, Roman versus Drew is your match. It's the match. You're working on another level. I mean, I, I, that's what I started thinking about, Survivor Series, and how, like, Sasha Banks is just working on another level, and Drew and 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 Roman are just working on another level. And I'm sitting there going, like, yep, and Randy's working on another level. And then I'm looking, as I've been saying, I told you before Survivor Series, 
That men's Survivor Series team is just one of the most spectacularly spectacularly talented group of people that they've ever brought together for a Survivor Series team. You know, you got Sheamus, Matt Riddle, Keith Lee, AJ Styles, Braun Strowman. Braun is feeling aggressive, beating up the owner of the company, Adam Pearce. But really, I feel like AJ Styles at any moment could become the number one contender and is on the verge to be back into the championship scene. AJ Styles is still as good as he always was. And I think he's even better being frustrated bad guy who can't get his team together and having that big old bodyguard behind him that he's too full of himself to even know that the guy speaks English. Love it. I'm starting to feel optimistic about Keith Lee. I tweeted something while I was watching Raw last week. I ended up arguing with some wrestling website, one of the wrestling websites. I don't remember which one. But I felt like the match between Bobby Lashley and Keith Lee was so much more the Keith Lee that we've been waiting for than we've been getting. I felt it was aggressive. I felt he was more athletic. I felt that he was quicker. I, I, I thought he was just more Keith Lee. He's got good theme music again. I'm back to being optimistic about the future of Keith Lee. And I love the Matt Riddle stuff. I like the goofy stuff that Matt Riddle is doing right now. I like the promos that he's doing. I think they're funny. I, the segment with Matt Riddle and MV, I'm sorry, with Riddle and MVP on Raw this week or last week was hilarious. Pizza yogurt. And then when he goes, I'm not your bro. And Matt Riddle goes, oh, it's like, I'm compelled. I'm interested. And that is, is, is where we get wrestling at its best. Not necessarily when the matches are at their best, although good matches help, but compelling people, compelling characters. The, and the reason being compelling is so important is because it compels you to watch the show and to get involved and to care. And I feel like we're really on the verge of seeing that. I am compelled and I care. Watching Alexa Bliss straddle John Morrison and, and launch herself into him so he flipped over the guardrail was incredible. I am compelled by The Fiend and Alexa Bliss together. Alexa Bliss is amazing. I'm compelled to see what happens with The Miz and that Money in the Bank briefcase. Then you go over to SmackDown. Oh my God, SmackDown. I really was sitting there going like, okay, everything has been perfect for Roman Reigns since SummerSlam. He comes back, and to me, the Jey Uso storyline was just excellent. It was perfect. Everything, Paul Heyman is interesting. Roman Reigns is super interesting. Everybody's, it's just good. The 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 ebbs and flows that, that Jey Uso is going through are great. But I'm sitting there going like, okay, we've seen two big Jey Uso pay-per-view matches. Like, we can't just watch Roman Reigns versus Jey Uso all the time. That's like the people who are like, well, I would just have Roman Reigns. I think Marsh in our Patreon group said that uh, he wanted Roman Reigns to just fight uh, Samoans until WrestleMania where he fights The Rock. And I'm like, bro, there aren't any more in the WWE. There's no more. There was just Jey Uso, and now he already beat Jey Uso. So you need to have new challengers. And there was a part of me that was sitting there going, does this work without that family tie in it? Does this work when you now change the storyline and Roman Reigns has to re-enter the SmackDown roster and start going through people? And the answer is yes, it does. Because you bring back the old Kevin Owens. 
And I, when I say old Kevin Owens, this is like the Kevin Owens I saw on SmackDown. That's like NXT Kevin Owens. That's not authority Kevin Owens. That's not even universal champion Kevin Owens. That is NXT Kevin Owens. This is what Kevin Owens is capable of. Hitting the table. Stand, sitting at the head of it. Symbolically. Ah, oh, I am so excited for the Roman Reigns-Kevin Owens story to unfold. And we can't take for granted that it was ever going to happen. We can't take for granted that the, the Roman Reigns, that Roman Reigns would just have another super compelling story after Jey Uso. But also Jey Uso is kind of involved in this one. It's this long form storytelling where everything matters. Things matter. Things are starting to matter again. And when things matter in WWE and you're compelled by the characters, uh-oh, we might be on the verge of a new era. That's all I'm saying. Maybe I'm putting the cart before the horse. Maybe I was all caffeinated up and it got me excited. Maybe I'm a shill. Maybe I'm an optimist. But when I look down the roster, I'm thinking we're quite possibly on the verge of a new era. Look at what else you've got on SmackDown. Sasha Banks at an all-time high. Bailey at an all-time high. And Bianca Belair nipping at the heels. You've got an intercontinental rivalry going on between Daniel Bryan and Sami Zayn. It's a dream match. I sat there looking at my wife going, can you believe Generico and Bryan Danielson are wrestling on SmackDown? And she's like, I can't even believe I know who Generico and Brian Danielson are. What have you done to me, Sam? I was like, this is besides the point, Jay. That's besides the point. Don't worry about it. But I mean, and then Billy Kay is entertaining as hell. I think Billy Kay is hilarious. But there's, there's like so much going on right now. There's so much going on. And sometimes, sometimes we forget that because there's, there's so much programming that you need a lot going on to really recognize it. But, I mean, you have a lot of characters with a lot of interesting stories all going on simultaneously and all performing at a high level. You know, I, I feel like there are performers that it seems to me are getting the opportunity to shine. And I just sort of feel that there's a new wave New wave coming in. Think about it. I mean, the people coming in right now, the 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 Drew McIntyres. Drew McIntyre only started being a main event good guy at this year. This year is when Drew McIntyre started being a main event good guy. But look at that wave that's right under him. Everybody evolving. Everybody changing. Dude, I think when you watch this show and you watch it without pessimism, and you watch it without looking for things to be pissed about. If you just watch it and allow yourself to get excited, you might sit there and say to yourself, oh my God, something's happening here. The next big thing is happening. The next big thing is everything. The next big thing is this roster full of people that are all performing at this high level. And I think they're probably all motivating each other to perform at that high level because it really is remarkable to see. So 
It's <coughs> excuse me. It's got me jazzed. It's got me super jazzed. Obviously, uh, I also got jazzed watching the uh, uh, Liv Morgan documentary. Talk about optimistic. You know, you hear so often, and who knows if this was just for the cameras or whatever. But all I can judge is what I saw in the documentary and what I've seen from Liv Morgan in person, which is she's always smiling. She, I, I don't really see her in a bad mood. But you hear all these interviews from people that are like bitter, right? And they're like, oh, they weren't using me. Oh, I was sitting around, not using. I want to do this. I want to do that. And they're not using me. They're not using me. They're not using me. And like, you hear that enough times from enough people. And you're like, oh, I guess it must be a terrible place to work there. I guess this must be awful. I guess this must be hell. But then you watch the Liv Morgan documentary and you look at Liv and I feel like, I don't know if it's just her naturally or if she's conditioned herself, but she just seemed like with all the unsuredness going on around her, I mean, she was off TV for three months for no conceivable reason, but it would just be these little things. You know, there was a scene where she was getting ready to do a dark match, and it was her first match in forever. It was in the era, so this, this, the documentary basically follows her. It tells her backstory, but it follows her from the Superstar shakeup a year or two ago, where the Riot Squad first broke up. Follows her over to SmackDown, where she basically had one match the whole time she was there. She does, like, nothing. Then it follows her back to Raw, where she does nothing for a while. Then it follows her into the uh, Lana Lashley storyline, where, you know, I mean, and, and I, I, I think that they're pretty honest about the Lana Lashley storyline, you know, in the sense that they're positive about the debut of Liv Morgan. Because like I've said, the segment itself, the Lana Lashley wedding segment was a great wrestling segment. It was a great wrestling television segment. It was memorable. It got people talking. Everybody performed in it well. I thought it was a great wrestling wedding segment. The problem is that the story never really panned out. And they kind of say that without saying that, that Liv felt insecure because she didn't know who her character was supposed to be. And I get what they're saying. You know, they're saying like Liv hasn't really defined who she is. And I remember when she was cutting those promos and I got, I got what that is. Liv is young. You know, Liv is still figuring it out and that's who they wanted to portray in a character. But Liv kind of made it seem like she didn't quite know how to do that. But there were like scenes where like, it was the first time in weeks and weeks and weeks that she was actually getting the opportunity to wrestle in front of a crowd. And 30 seconds, literally 30 seconds, she's in gorilla position with Ember Moon, ready to do a dark match. And Michael Hayes comes right back through the curtain. And it does give you a real taste of how quickly things change in WWE. And how it's just a mentality you have to have in WWE. Where it's it's not, it doesn't happen until it actually happens. Because everybody, everybody who's ever worked in WWE has a story about something changing last minute. and Or, or something getting canceled or it just didn't pan out. And it can suck when it happens. 
But you got to pick yourself back up, not take it personally, and just wait for the next opportunity and knock it out of the park every chance that you get. That's the only way to do it. And that's the vibe that I got from Liv Morgan. Then instead of being bummed out about everything that was happening, she took every little thing, all the little things, and said, you know what? That's good news. When her dark match got canceled and they said it was because they didn't want the crowd to see her before she re-debuted, she said, all right, that's good news then. They care. When she had done nothing on TV for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, but then she got drafted to Raw and it was televised, she said, oh, well, that's good news. They wouldn't have drafted me on television if they didn't you know, believe that I was capable of something. And that, to me, is an energy that, that more people need to have. That, to me, is like, is when you're focusing on the positives and, to some extent, the realities. You know, people like to think that being negative is, no, I'm not negative, I'm a realist. That's not true. Because some of the stuff Liv was saying was true. Like, your match got canceled, but it's because they don't want you to debut. That is technically good news. They care about your character. That's not Liv being a blind optimist. That's true. And for you to ignore that and just go like, oh, well, I guess they just don't, th if, whatever, they don't care about me. That's blind pessimism. And there's a lot of blind pessimism that happens because it's easier to be pessimistic. You don't get disappointed if you're pessimistic. But it's a defense mechanism. You know, it's not reality. And you also end up not really, I mean, I guess if you're pessimistic, you get pleasantly surprised because you expect the worst and the worst doesn't happen. But you don't really meet that many successful people that walk around pessimistic because they're trying to guard themselves from feeling disappointment. Successful people go for the best every time. And then if it doesn't work out, they go, that sucks, dust themselves off, and they do it again. And that was the, the vibe that I was getting from Liv Morgan. And that's why I just, I just feel like she's going to be pretty successful in this thing. Liv strikes me as the type of person who's not, really not going to fail, you know? And, and she relates to people in such a way, man. They called her up to the main roster and she became a star instantaneously. Liv Morgan's a superstar. And uh, they did a very good job with their documentary. And they did a good job with their documentary because it doesn't just seem like a wrestling documentary. The way it was produced, the way it was edited, the way it was put together, the way it was presented to us feels like it was presented to us in Liv Morgan's voice, the graphics on it, everything. It just feels like it was tailored to her for the whole thing, the whole film to tell her story, which I thought was great. So check that out on the network if you get a chance. Uh, we got an interview this week on the show. You know, last week um, uh, we had Rob Schamberger and... I like wrestling creators. I like people who are inspired and motivated by wrestling to create things, uh, whether that be art or whether that be a YouTube channel. Chris Van Vliet has become a big-time uh, YouTube uh, interviewer. Uh, he's interviewed uh, many of the top superstars in the world, um, and he's done a, a, a bunch of stuff. He's done stuff uh, for AEW. He's done stuff for independent shows. But he keeps his name out there. Uh, and you know, we had, we had crossed paths a few times. We had sent messages a few times, but I thought it was time, uh, that we did each other's show. So if you guys are curious about me and want to see me answer somebody else's questions, you can go over to his YouTube channel and watch the interview that I did 
for his show. And if you're curious about Chris Van Vliet, then you can go ahead and stay tuned right now because my guest on Not Sam Wrestling this week is none other than Chris Van Vliet. The Not Sam Wrestling interview. Let's welcome to Not Sam Wrestling uh, somebody who has made himself known in the last, I would say, two to three years, very, very strongly in the wrestling community. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, star of YouTube, Chris Van Vliet is here. Chris. We're doing this, man. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for being on, man. How are you? I'm doing great. This is a pleasure. I, I A big reason that I started doing my YouTube videos the way that I was doing them is because you were doing your YouTube videos the way that you were doing them. So here we are. It's the crossover that we never asked for, but we have anyway. Yeah, I kind of look at, at some of your stuff and I like I remember it like does feel very much like the stuff that I have done and kind of continue to do. But I was like, man, if we had the technology today, oh, can you imagine like because like I look at the stuff that you do and I'm like, it, it's so much easier now to travel and to create a setup that looks super professional and 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 that you can do anywhere. Yeah, which uh, most of my interviews, at least the in-person ones, are done with an iPhone. And when I say most of them, I mean all of them. All of them are done with an iPhone. And when I started doing my videos on my YouTube channel in 2011, I'd be terrified. I don't. I would be terrified to like record an entire interview with an iPhone, like an hour-long interview. I'd be terrified it wasn't going to work. Yeah. Yeah. But now they got iPhone 12, and they're like, "Would you like Dolby Sound?" And you're like, "I guess, yeah, sure." Yeah, I mean, if I have to, <laughs> sure, why not? So, uh, you started uh, uh, working in media, and as a wrestling fan, I mean, th these are my favorite stories. This is my story. Like, you're working in media. You're just a super wrestling fan. You realize that you have access to wrestlers. You realize that you can just talk to him about wrestling. Like, why not? And boom, we're off to the races. Um, were you a wrestling fan all your life? So I, I've been a wrestling fan my whole life, kind of in and out, and really became a like, hardcore fan right around 15, 16 years old in the Attitude Era. But my first memory of wrestling was like being at my grandparents' house and just sports was just always on the TV. Um, so whether it was basketball or baseball, a lot of hockey growing up in Canada. But if one of those wasn't on Saturday night, wrestling would be on. And that, that was where I was first introduced to it. And, you know, there were the larger than life characters like Hogan and Macho Man. But then like also like for some reason, the ones that really stick out in my head are like Repo Man and Coco uh, Beware, like the Birdman. The best. Right. And wrestling was just the larger than life. And I, I was aware of it, but, you know, didn't watch a ton of it. And I was on a high school wrestling team. And when you're a high school wrestler, when you're doing amateur wrestling, they'll tell you like, what we do in here is real. Right. That stuff on TV, I mean, that, that stuff's fake. And a really good friend of mine was a huge wrestling fan. And back in the 90s, when you had a friend, you did this crazy thing called talking on the phone. Isn't that so, weird that like two dudes would just call each other and just talk? Like when I was in, when I was in school, like my buddy would just call me in the afternoon because yeah. what else are we going to do? And we'd be on the phone for an hour and a half just talking about nothing. This was pre-texting, this yeah. was pre-DMing, this was pre-aiming, wow, aiming, Aim. yeah. So you would talk on the phone and I knew that every Monday night at nine o'clock, our phone call would abruptly come to an end because Raw was starting. And I remember one week I was like, yeah, whatever, like let's finish this conversation, I'll stick on the phone with you here and 
deal with this thing. And I just got sucked in. It was Austin McMahon. That was the big storyline at the time. And I just got sucked in. And when I love something, when I become passionate about something, I go all the way in. It's the only way to be. I, I just, I dive right in. I don't check the temperature of the water. I don't check the depth. I just dive right in. And that's how I was. I went from watching zero minutes of wrestling a year <laughs> to watching Raw and Nitro. Then Raw replayed the next day on TSN in Canada. Then I watched Thunder and I watched ECW and I watched Heat and I watched Metal and Jacked. And then we'd watch pay-per-views and I was all the way in. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing too. Like when you go back and look at how much wrestling programming there was, because people talk about it now, but like you go back and you see like Sunday Night Heat. In your head, you think like, oh, that was kind of just a throwaway show. But it really wasn't. Like, you go back and watch some of those, especially the earlier episodes of Sunday Night Heat. That was 7 p.m. Sunday nights. In the States, it was on MTV. And you've got, like, Undertaker and Kane having matches as a team yeah. on Sunday Night Heat. Like, that's how big wrestling was. That they were like, look, there's no throwaway shows. Because whenever we put wrestling on, millions of people are going to watch. Well, Shotgun and Jacked kind of felt like throwaway shows a little bit. Shotgun started so strong, though. I don't know if you watched the early Shotgun, but like I, when Shotgun first came on, it was like a totally new thing. They they set up a ring in a bar in New York, and you would just have this weird, kind of more adult-oriented pre-attitude era, attitude era e wrestling show that was in the middle of a bar in New York. And you're like, this is amazing. But then I think, I think, yeah, somebody realized that it's Saturday at midnight on syndicated cable. <laughs> like we, this, we're putting so much money into this. That's crazy. What if we just put on some afterthought matches instead that we taped two weeks ago? And they're like, okay, we could do that instead. Right. I, I was so into wrestling that a year or two after I, you know, rediscovered it, I became a backyard wrestler. I then had <laughs> dreams of wanting to be a pro wrestler. I was still doing the amateur high school wrestling and I'll never forget it. I was in a match with this guy who was so much better than me at wrestling. And he was just destroying me. Like it was like eight nothing in the match. And I just gone out of bounds and I, I whispered to him as we were heading back to the match, I said, or back to the like center of the, uh, the circle, I said, uh, I'll give you a tornado. I'll give you a tornado DDT off the judges table and I'll just take the DQ. And he's like, <laughs> this was like, no, this was like an actual athlete. And here yeah. I was like, I'm going to give you a tornado DDT. Like what? And then like 15 seconds later, the match was over. Cause you know, he beat me. He's like, I'd prefer to just beat you. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not taking a DQ. I don't know what a tornado DDT is, but no, sir. I love that. You're trying to like, uh, you're trying to call spots though in amateur wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> like you're like, all right, I'm going to do a tornado DDT. I'll take the DQ. You work the arm after that. Cool. No. And he's like, what? <laughs> I also remember, I remember being fascinated that none of the very few of the moves in professional wrestling could be done in in amateur wrestling. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the reverse you could probably pull off, but yeah, not the, not the right. other way. Like there is no, you can't even do a regular DDT, let alone a tornado DDT. No, yeah, no absolutely. I remember I, I did a cross face on someone and a cross face in amateur wrestling is with one arm across their face to grab their other arm. Mm -hmm. And I remember I did it too hard that I broke the guy's nose and ended up losing two points for like being too aggressive. What? I looked at the referee. I'm like, how else am I supposed to do a cross face? Yeah. Yeah. No, too aggressive. You were in the wrong sport. I just wish this had been like in the future and you were doing it now. And you're like, yeah, I tried to get him in the bank statement. 
and I just couldn't quite <laughs> I couldn't quite flip over. <laughs> so, but but when you started amateur wrestling, like this is kind of fascinating to me that I did amateur wrestling when I was only for one year when I was in eighth grade. I did the whole season because I don't quit things. Um, but I and I also had a perfect record throughout the season. I'm not going to tell you which side the zero was on. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I went I went zero and thirteen. Uh, Woo. Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a long haul. And there was that moment, like, you do know, I even got to that place where you know when you're beat kind of before you even start. Like, I oh, remember, yeah. like, one of my last, I was really, I did, most of the time I really tried. And a couple of times I did get that emotional wave where you, like, almost, like, break down and cry after you lose and you don't expect it, like, because yeah. there's just, yeah. so, there, there's such an emotional output going out because there's the physical output and everything. But I remember, uh, Towards the end of the season, looking at this guy, he was all like, you know, jacked, jacked eighth grade kid. And like he had this look of intensity in his eyes where he was just in a, ma- a place of maturity that was he was I was not there. And I remember looking at him and going like, this is going to be a quick one in my head. Like this is this is not going to last long at all. And it did not. I was right about that. But I don't think not that I thought I was going to get in there and throw people through tables and stuff like that. But I don't think I would have done a season of amateur wrestling had I not been a WWE fan. Like I, I just thought it was the closest thing to WWE that I could do at school. It's interesting to me that yeah. you were, you were in your non pro wrestling fan phase when you started amateur wrestling, you just did it for the sport. But yeah, I actually think that arguably the closest thing to pro wrestling in high school is drama club. I was much better at that. I was much right. better at so, theater. So yeah. I, I think there's actually a lot more parallels there, which is crazy to say it. Yeah. But no, I, I, I just really liked combat. I, and I, you know, ended up becoming a, an MMA fan and a UFC fan. I just liked that. I don't know. I was just really drawn to it. And then me becoming a pro wrestling fan made me appreciate amateur wrestling that much more. Actually made me a better amateur wrestler, I feel like. Yeah. Have you, did you now... After you catch on in the Attitude Era and you get obsessed and you backyard wrestle and you're, you know, were there any dead spots after that? Like, I, I'm always really interested in people's dead spots as a fan because, I mean, I, I mean, like, the most hardcore of hardcore fans now and people who are, like, they, like you, they do it as part of their work who do have spots where they were just like, yeah, I just wasn't a fan during this era. After the Attitude Era, like, did you fall off at all or did you maintain? So when I went to college, it fell off a little bit. Although yeah. I was like the most annoying wrestling fan for the first two years of college. Like, I, I was <laughs> so embarrassing. I was forcing people, not forcing them, but telling them to call me by my backyard wrestling <laughs> name, which was Chris Sharp. <laughs> no, bro, call me by my gimmick name. Yeah, yeah. I don't want kayfabe, brother. Just call me Sharp. <laughs> so there were people in my dorm that thought my real last name was Sharp, and like this, this was bad. One of my one of my backyard wrestling friends was my roommate for the first semester of my first year of college. So we were like putting on these backyard wrestling matches in like our lounge of our dorm. This was. It was ridiculous. I was like, yes, I was living the gimmick. It was so crazy. I remember we, there was a talent show and we wanted our talent to be, we'll put on this five minute like wrestling match. <laughs> and they were like, no. We're like, are you saying this isn't a talent? Yeah. They're like, no, that's just, you know, we want people that are singing and playing instruments and doing magic. Like, so you, you haven't even seen us do this and you're saying no. That's prejudice. And they said, okay, tomorrow morning, at 10 a.m., we'll watch you do your thing. 
okay. So we went, we put on our little match and then afterwards <laughs> puffing and puffing. It's blown so like, up. <laughs> sorry. Um, we can't have this as part of the show. <laughs> well, at least, at least thank you for letting us uh, giving it a try. <laughs> so I'd say a little bit, probably halfway through college, my focus was just elsewhere. Sure. I, you know, my passion was, I was always passionate about broadcasting. Sure. And I was starting to try to figure out a way, like how can I make this thing that I'm studying my job one day? And I was still aware of what was going on in wrestling. So this would have been, 2003, four, five. I remember I was dating a girl at that time. Monday night, I put on wrestling and she's like, we are not watching this. And I said, I don't complain when you put on the shows that you put on. Like, I, let's just- I would end it. I would watch. have ended the relationship right there. <laughs> right there. We're not going to well, get along, lady. Oh, see you later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't have the same interest. Yeah, I, when I was in high school and I was, I was dating a girl who was like, I mean, she wasn't intolerant of wrestling. She was just completely unaware of it. And I was yeah, trying to sure. explain it to her. And she was like, wait. So they know the results ahead of time. They're cooperating. And I'm like, yes. And she goes, but they're really hurting each other. And I go, yes. And she's like, is it like, uh, is it like sexual? I'm like, what? no, 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 no. What? 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 No, no, no. <laughs> what? No, no. Huh? <laughs> so but I fell off. Yeah, I fell off like, oh, three, oh, four, oh, five, then came back and really haven't looked back since. Like I've been a super fan even with even when i had fallen off mm -hmm. a friend of a friend was working for wwe canada at the time and like every time that he came by our place he'd be like hey here's tickets to the next show i'm like for free yeah i yeah. don't have to pay <laughs> and i'm like yes i'm in let's go and you'd still go and it was awesome yes yeah yeah yes so at what point did you how did you really go like you know what I got amateur wrestling background. I'm in good shape. I'm a backyard wrestler. Chris Sharp is a man. I'm gonna be. A, I'm gonna be a pro wrestler. Like, did, was there a period in your life where you were like, "This is. I think this is what I'll do." Yeah, it was like I. I know this is what I'm gonna do. And I, I went that. to wrestling school. Uh -huh. I went to the Squared Circle in Toronto. And while I was there, while I was training, Angelina Love was there, and Tracy Brooks was also there. They were like in the advanced ring. They'd already had matches at this point, but I was. I was all in. And I had made an agreement with one of my fellow backyard wrestlers who went by the name of Rage. Nice. Raging Chris Sharp. Nice. We made an agreement that we were both going to go to wrestling school. We made a pact with each other. And when I say something, when I say I'm going to do something, and this is in all aspects of my life, mm -hmm. when I say I'm going to do something, I do it. So in the summer between my sophomore and junior year, I was going to wrestling school. And it was about a half-ish hour drive from where I was living, I was back at my parents' house and I was working my summer job. And like, it was a lot, it was a lot on my plate. My summer job was working at Enterprise Rent-A-Car <laughs> and I was renting these cars out then going to wrestling school after that, then going to wrestling school on weekends. Felt like I was really picking it up very quickly and I was loving it. And then I kind of came to like a crossroad where I had to decide when it was time to go back to school that fall I had to decide, was I going to continue with wrestling school or was I going to focus on school school? Because you didn't think I, you could do both? I could have done, done both, mm -hmm. but I didn't want to like only half-ass both. Gotcha. So I wanted to be able to put my full ass into both of these things. It's important to use your full ass at all times. Right. Yeah. And it was, it was a much longer drive from where I was going to school. Mm -hmm. It was about an hour. It was $250 a month, which when you're in college, $250 is a ton it's a lot of, money. of beer money. Yeah. So 
I went and visited Eric Young's school in Cambridge, Ontario. It was called Russellplex Ontario. Mm -hmm. And this is before Eric Young was the Eric Young that we know now. He's, he's only a handful of years older than me, which was also strange. So here I am as a 20 year old kid and he's like a 25 year old running this wrestling school, 24 or whatever he was. And I'll never forget, I went into his school to just kind of like, you know, get a lay of the land, see how it was, see how it would be. And I'm 10 minutes into watching this training session and one of his students breaks his arm. <laughs> so he's standing there like on the ropes, his arm is like, ah. And Eric's like, this doesn't, this doesn't happen all the time. This doesn't happen frequently. I, I, like, I'm so sorry, like come back another time. And it was just kind of, and it had nothing to do with this guy breaking his arm. I, I will never remember that. I never forget that. But I was just like, you know what? I think I got to focus on broadcasting. Wrestling will always be there for me. But I want to really focus on what I've got here with, I was taking communication studies and I wanted to really focus on that. Now I've been so fortunate to be able to still dip my toe into the wrestling world while having the other foot firmly planted in the broadcasting world. Do you ever regret, I mean, you've been super successful in broadcasting, so it's like, obviously that was a good decision, but do you ever have those moments, or probably not anymore, but did you have those moments where you're like, oh, if I had stayed, if I had stayed in school, I'd be doing this or I'd be doing that. No, I'm actually, I'm really glad the path that I took. Yeah. Because wrestling's hard. Not that broadcasting's easy, but wrestling's really hard. And the indies weren't set up in, that was 2003. The indies weren't set up for success like they're set up now. Right. So I can only imagine fumbling and bumbling my way through the indies, being in a heck of a lot more pain now than I currently am. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really happy. And I never look back at anything in my life with any sort of regret. I would have regretted not going to wrestling school, period. Right. But I, but I appreciated that I went. I saw what it was about. I know how to do a handful of stuff. I don't think I could work a match, but I know how to bump. I know how to, you know, give a scoop slam. I know how to do the the universal spot in every match. You know, that's the, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Headlock or a lock up, headlock into the ropes, throw them off, leapfrog, drop down. I know how to do that. And I feel good that I know how to do it's that. It's amazing. I feel like it gives me a certain appreciation for these people when I talk to them. Right, right. Yeah, and, and also that you made the choice, right? It wasn't made for you. Like you yeah. consciously made this choice of me like, no, this is what I'm going to do. And then you did it. I did it. And then I didn't do it. <laughs> right. But I mean, you made the choice to not do it. Yeah. In lieu of something else. And you did the something else. Yep. So it's yeah. like, you know, everything kind of ends up exactly where it's supposed to end up. And then you're still in this world. So it's like, yeah, this is, this is where you were supposed to be. I'm also a firm believer that if you point yourself in the direction of the thing that you want to do, yeah, it just starts to happen. And I, I know that if I had pointed myself in the direction of wrestling, you know, it, it would have started to materialize there. But I pointed myself in the direction of broadcasting and one thing built on another that another and i've been really fortunate to be able to have the career that i've had so far and i'm excited for what's coming next right right and you do the work right it's like if, if you point yourself in the direction and also in, in every opportunity you get you work as hard as you can that's when stuff starts to happen because i feel like people take on that philosophy of well if i think a certain way or if i think positively or if i just point myself in the direction and let the universe unfold itself it'll just happen but a lot of times it's like you're not doing the work on the way you're just doing the positive thinking and that doesn't that's not how that 
happens. I just, I like to look at the people who are doing the things that I want to do. Yes. And it excites me because I go, oh, that means that I can do it now. Right. And I spent so much time in college reading bios. And that actually, that, that, that's something I still do to this day, but I would be so fascinated to see like, okay, so where did this person start? And then what was the next step after that? Okay, cool. I can start where they started. I can do that. I can go intern somewhere. I can go volunteer somewhere. I mean, in, in the world that we're living in now, you can say, I can start a podcast. I yeah. can start a YouTube channel. And that's the thing. Those are the steps that you need to take in order to, to get the success that you want to have. So when you're doing interviews, do you, at ever, do you ever find yourself realizing you're just doing this for yourself? Like there are moments in the conversation where you're like, I'm just getting this information for me now. I mean, I can. Yeah, 100% of yeah. the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, every conversation. Yeah, yeah. every conversation I think I've ever had, especially yeah. like some of the last handful of interviews I've done with directors, right. like movie directors, I've worked something in where... I'm just like, teach me, teach me. I am, I am, I am, I want to learn. I, I want to be a sponge. Teach me. I don't, I don't care about how great it was working with this actor. Like teach me something that I can learn. Right. You just want that, that one little nugget, just that one nugget that you're like, okay, I'm going to add that to the collection. And that's what I've always done in my interviews. I've always just looked for that one moment. Yeah. And I have a very good friend of mine who's fantastic at doing celebrity interviews. His name's Jake Hamilton. He has a YouTube channel called Jake's Takes. And he had these amazing moments. Like he, he asked Angelina Jolie if she would dance with him during an interview. He asked Morgan Freeman to read a eulogy that he had written out the night before. Like he had these amazing moments. And I went, man, if I could just have one of those moments every single interview, boy, that'd be really memorable. Did you have to shift your thinking at all when you went into sort of the long form interviews? Because you do a great job of doing conversational interviews. But I think that that people don't realize that you're not trained to do that in the work that you were doing before. When you're doing news interviews and you're doing celebrity interviews and you're doing interviews that have moments like that that you just described, it's like yeah. you've got five minutes with this person. Yeah. and you got to make them count. So it's like, you have to be super deliberate with your questions. If you want to make a moment, the moment's not just going to happen. So you have to think of the moment before you go in. How am I going to set this up? I got three minutes to put Angelina Jolie in a good mood. So that way I can lead into the dance thing. Like it's not organic. It's, it's, you know, it's just a different art form, you know, really. So when you start doing wrestling interviews, and especially when you start doing wrestling interviews specifically for YouTube, did you deliberately change the focus of being like, this just has to be a conversation? Yes. That's a great question, Sam. Uh, that's exactly oh, yeah. what happened because early on doing these junket interviews, you get four minutes. Right. It's, it's literally, it's four minutes. That celebrity sits in that same room the entire day and a new reporter comes in every four minutes and the cycle just continues. For those interviews, I would write out word for word exactly what my question was going to be. Word for word, I would write it out. Whereas when I do these interviews now, I kind of just list off a bunch of topics and then some subtopics. And then if the third thing I wrote down happens to end up being the 11th thing, and then the fourth thing ends up being the first thing, it's all good. We're just having a conversation. But yeah, it, it, you have to be so deliberate in those junket interviews. And I've had some great Jake Hamilton moments, if you will. Mm -hmm. you know, I had Gerard Butler give me a movie punch on camera, which was so cool. That's great. Like, you can't do that in a podcast. What are no. you going to do? Where do you go from there? Right. Yeah, exactly. That'd be great. You know? Just like 20 minutes in, get a movie punch and then do another 20 minutes of like, all right. So, I mean, that was fun, but, uh, 
Gladiator, you know, was good. Uh, uh. <laughs> the other thing, the other thing that I would, I would, I would do with these celebrity interviews is I would realize we were only airing one clip from it. Right. So I would push the envelope as much as I possibly could, knowing that if the moment didn't work, if I swung for the fences and you know whiffed on it, the only people that would know about it were me and you and the cameraman. Yeah. And then and the audio gun. That's it. Whereas with a podcast interview, if you come out swinging and you miss, well, you've got another 59 minutes with that person that you got to try to like build things back up and build that rapport back up. So not only are they two different styles of interviews, they're two completely different conversations. Is there, and I'm not, I'm not going to ask for names because I hate that question when people do it to me, but <laughs> is there anything worse than that feeling of like you're a minute and a half in and you realize like this is gonna be on my shoulders today. This is, uh, I'm gonna be doing the work yeah. on this one. And it's funny how we talk about how short four minutes is in a junket interview. Yeah. But four minutes can feel like an eternity if things aren't going yeah. your way. I'll bet if you figure out 20 seconds in, this person doesn't wanna be here, you're like, what am I, what are we gonna just sit here and look at each other? Like you're looking like, is that my time? They're like, you're only two and a half minutes in, buddy. <laughs> I, I, I will name names. It's actually a really funny story. So okay. I was in Mexico City for the James Bond junket. And this is when Christoph Waltz was the bad guy in the movie. Mm -hmm. Christoph Waltz, incredible, amazing actor. Unbelievable. So, so good. And he played the villain in this movie. And I sat down with him. First of all, I walked in the room. It was just a little bit strange. He was standing in between the two chairs. And he was like, oh, good to see you. Take a seat. And I'm like, which, which, chair, which chair is mine? So he sat down, I sat in the other chair and I asked him a question that I thought was a good question. Obviously the villain is a bad guy. Mm -hmm. And I said, how do you think he would describe himself? I love because that. Because I'm, I'm saying he's a bad guy, you know? How do you think he would describe himself? And he looks at me and he goes, it is not my job to do your job. I'm not going to describe this character. <laughs> But that's not what you were saying. You were saying, how would he justify his behavior so that he doesn't consider himself a villain? That's what I was. That's, that's what, what you're saying. At. I was yeah, like, yeah, he's a movie villain. But <laughs> no, every movie villain feels justified in what they're doing. Of course, not, like, out like a wrestling heel. Exactly. Yes. And the interview was all downhill from me. <laughs> <laughs> uh. And it wasn't the worst interview of all time. It was just uncomfortable. And I think that Christoph was like relishing in the fact that he made people feel a little bit sure. uncomfortable. Sure. And again, he is a phenomenal, amazing actor. And I ended that interview like a minute earlier. Just like, okay, well, thank you very much. And oh, okay. Well, thank you. Nice <laughs> to see you. And he's still doing that. I'm being polite, but I'm not being polite. Like... <laughs> I love that. And I did an interview with him like two or three years later in New Zealand uh -huh. for the movie Alita Battle Angel. And it was like I was interviewing a completely different person. Mm -hmm. He was so kind and warm and friendly. He was funny. He was laughing at my jokes. I was laughing at his jokes. And I think that if I wanted to distill this down to something that might make sense to me, I think that he was like kind of reflecting the way his character was. He was a mm. villain in this Bond movie. He was kind of being a bit of a villain in person. He was a father and a warm, loving person in Alita. All of a sudden, that's who I got in the press tour. I love that. And I bet that's true because he's such a good actor 
that I bet he does when he starts talking about it, like a lot, when he gets into press mode, he probably does fall into some elements of those characters. I could buy it. I believe it. He was, he was so lovely when I saw him the second time around. In fact, we went to a little dinner the night before and all the stars of the movie were there and Christoph gave a toast to the director. And I was like, this, this guy's fantastic. (laughs) By the way, a minute ago, I said gladiator in reference to your Gerard Butler story, and it's driving me crazy because obviously you meant three hundred. Yeah, and Russell Crowe. Yeah, yeah, I got it's it. Okay, okay. So like everybody like who's been cursing me out on like listening to this or watching this, I know. Okay, I know. This is Sparta. <laughs> um. So going back to your uh your dead spots as a fan, when you started becoming re obsessed, when you got obsessed yeah. the first time and then re obsessed the second time especially now that the network is there, do you find yourself going back and watching stuff that you missed from either that, like, you know, golden era or the new generation era? Because, like, for me, I love the new generation era. Love it. However, that's because that's I was watching it when I was a kid. Like, it's, I mean, 1993, 1994, 1995 is not historically known as the greatest time in the world for WWE, right. but I yeah, yeah. can't get enough of it. But it's because it's what I was watching as a kid. Do you go back and watch that stuff or, you know, in your downtime when you just want to watch some wrestling, do you find yourself going back and watching the stuff that you already know you love? Yeah, that's I, it's the latter for sure. Yeah, I don't feel like I missed a ton. So this would have been like, you know, oh, oh, three, oh, four, oh, five. I don't feel like I missed like, you know, there were some obviously some great matches in that time with Kurt Angle and Chris Benoit. Eddie Guerrero. There was there was obviously great stuff happening, but I don't feel like I missed anything. And if it was big enough, I probably saw it at some point mm-hmm. during that time. Now I feel like I'm just watching a lot of current stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't tell you the last time I went back and watched something old. I love the element of surprise. I don't even like watching the same movie more than once, unless it's Back to the Future, because you know, that's the greatest movie of all time. Just the one, or do you watch the trilogy? Oh, so good. You watch- I just love being surprised. Yeah, I got. What, I what just- do we got here? I just got the box set. Uh, yes. It just happens. It just it literally just happens to be right here. But yeah, Back to the Future is one of those mo- movies where I'm like, I'm not watching just the first one. Like, I'm we're gonna be here a while because we're going through the whole trilogy. We're we're gonna witness the yes. whole story. Um, yes. Yeah, that's uh, that that's that's interesting. But you don't really go back and do that for wrestling as much. I I don't go back and watch a ton of old stuff. Certainly not an entire show. Right. And I'm sorry if this is like sacrilegious for me to say this. No, I mean. I'll go back and watch specific matches. Yeah. I'm, I'm blown away by athleticism. Like I love the like Will Ospreay style of wrestling. Uh-huh. I was a huge fan of Kid Cash and ECW. Oh, yes. I loved the, I, I loved the uh, cruiserweight hour uh, that WCW was doing. I love that style of like, show me something that I can't physically do. So your favorite. I love that. So your favorite call of all time is Kid Cash is money. <laughs> Joey, how did you know joey style said it every match i loved it me and my buddy yeah. would be sitting there because we used to go we, we started going to ecw shows a lot towards the end because they started running the manhattan center all the time and we were you know you know late in high school by that point so we could just go in and go to the shows but we would just sit there yelling it to each other throughout all the kid cash matches <laughs> <laughs> kid cash ECW only only came to my neck of the woods once it mm-hmm. came to mississauga ontario at the hershey center and i was working my high school job 
at PJ's Pet Center. Nice. I was working in the fish department. <laughs> and one of my coworkers, I was 16. One of my coworkers was like a casual fan. And I'm like, come on, Tyler, let's do this thing. And he's like, all right, we'll do that. All right, we'll go. And we drove. It was almost an hour and we went there. And it was one of the greatest shows oh. I've ever been part of. Those ECW shows. So I've been thinking about this a lot. I think I'm going to do something about it on the network because I've been thinking about like people don't really, when they think about ECW, they don't think about the generations that were there because it was only around for a short period of time. But I kind of see three different generations of ECW talent. And part of that is because really the generation that everybody thinks about is Raven, Sandman, Sabu, Dudley's, Taz. Yeah. Yeah, but like when all those guys started getting scooped up, there was this whole second wave that I think was started by the guy you just mentioned. I think like Mike Awesome and Masato Tanaka, that rivalry started this next wave and Kid Cash was part of that next wave and Steve Carino was a big part of that next wave and Rhino and all those guys. Um, What kind of period of time when you think about ECW, is there one period of time that as a fan you're like, yeah, yeah, this is my ECW. So it didn't, I wasn't really aware of it until I think about 2000. Right. I'll never forget. Mike Awesome was the champion. Mm-hmm. And Joey Styles was putting him over so hard on the air. Mm-hmm. He's like basically saying, look how much better he is than Triple H. Mm-hmm. Like he was using those words. <laughs> I can't remember who the WCW champion was at the time, but he was talking about how much better Mike Awesome was than the WCW champion. So that was the era that I watched and I watched it until it was done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense because like, you know, obviously when you're in New York, it's only got to come from Philly to New York. We got to get it way early and then it just, you know, makes its way around. So you are that, that last gen. I mean, I think I love that because I don't think that, that, you know, that last class that ECW had gets any attention. Like, and I think that they should, like when you look at like what, like the, the impact players, Justin Credible and Lance Storm were doing, even like a guy like C.W. Anderson, you probably are familiar with C.W. Anderson. Yeah, yeah, C.W. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'll t- I'll, but I'll tell you the reason why they don't get the credibility that they should yeah. is because of what WWE ended up making them with the invasion and the alliance. Just incredible was an absolute beast. Lance Storm was amazing. Mike Awesome so good, and then they come into WWE and you're like, well. Hey. To be fair, WCW ruined Mike Awesome way before WWE they got a chance. Did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you go well, from it's so funny. Like I was thinking about that when you were talking about how much he was being put over in ECW because he really was. It was like we lost a lot of talent, and we are now putting everything on Mike Awesome. Like Mike Awesome, yeah. the whole purpose of Mike Awesome was to be the unbeatable champion that eventually Rob Van Dam beat. But Rob Van Dam gets injured, and Mike Awesome goes to WCW, and it's just so funny that he goes from. Mike Awesome is the best wrestler in the whole world, and he's better than all the other wrestlers. And then he's like, no, he's that 70s guy, Mike Awesome. He's the fat lady thriller. <laughs> you you are I incorrect, almost, Joey. <laughs> I almost feel like for a lot of these guys, when they jumped ship in that era, that last ECW era, and when they went from there to WCW or WWE, especially WWE was basically saying, eh, you're not as good as you think you are. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, who knows? I mean... ECW was such a unique environment and it was such its own space. Like you didn't watch ECW thinking, oh, this will work anywhere. You watched ECW (laughs) because it was like, this is it. These, everything about just the whole vibe 
works because we're all here together because this is ECW. Like, I, yeah, I, I don't think, yeah, I, I, I still, I remember going, I went to the last pay-per-view. I think they had two, wow. they had two live events booked and that was it. But technically they were still, they were running commercials for the next pay-per-view. Except the internet kind of knew they were like, the building's not booked. They're not selling tickets. Like they're not like, this isn't, there's no shows booked except for these other two shows. And we're all just sitting there going, well, maybe, maybe they're just taking a break. Well, well, maybe they're going to call this guy. Well, maybe this is going to happen. Maybe this is an angle. Maybe. And it's like, no, no, we know this is gone. It was a real, real tough loss. And I think that that's part of the WWE invasion thing is that there's, there's nothing another company could do to recreate ECW. It could never happen. Like it's just, it's impossible. So, but we ECW fans were all left with such a hole in our heart. Yes. After ECW just flat out disappeared. Yeah. That we're going like, okay, they said the three letters. That means this thing is back. You're like, it's not coming back, dude. It can't. I know how much you want it. I know how much I want it, but it just can't. I think it's, it's crazy that 20 years later, those guys still get ECW chance. Yeah. You know, Tommy Dreamer will come out, whether it's at Impact or MLW or wherever he happens to be working, ECW, ECW. And I think that this all goes back to one thing that brings us all together as wrestling fans, and that's nostalgia. We love nostalgia as wrestling fans. Nostalgia is awesome. Dude, I was sitting there. So on the network show, I did a a whole 22-minute monologue about The Undertaker and Kane. And... I really did a lot of work for it. Like I went back and I watched every segment leading to the debut of Kane. Like I went through all the episodes of raw, thank God for the network and everything being chaptered out, but I watched all the promos and everything. And it really gave me this next level. Like I remembered living through it, obviously, but it gave me this next level appreciation going like, Oh my God, this really was perfect. Yeah. You know, well, nostalgia is a funny thing because we remember it as being, this amazing, perfect thing. And then sometimes you go back and you watch, like if you watched a full episode of Raw from 98, 99, cause we, all the time, the Attitude Era is the best, Attitude Era is the best. Yeah, Attitude Era was great and produced more stars than any other era. If you watch a full show, you'll be going, huh? oh, yeah. I mean, Naked Midian, really? <laughs> First of all, I love Naked Midian. But, oh! but <laughs> he's my favorite wrestler. But um, <laughs> I mean, I just, I don't know. For absurdity, I like absurdity. I like absurdity too. You know, I don't like it at the expense of other stuff, but I'm like, I don't know. Like, we saw Phineas, we saw Midian. We like, he's done a lot of great stuff. He could be naked Midian now. I'm not mad at it. But I like absurdity when, like, I, I loved the Jericho and MJF singing. I thought that that was, yeah, that was great absurdity. May Young giving birth to a hand, that's the kind of absurdity I could do without. Maybe, but. I don't think 20 years from now we'll like be sitting there going like, you know what one of the amazing moments was that we have to talk about Jericho and MJF singing. Like, we're you know, certainly not saying that about the hand. We're still talking about it. We were talking bad. It was though, <laughs> dude. I love it. I love all that stuff. Oh man. <laughs> I, I, I love that. Somebody was like, I just, I get such a kick out of the idea that like WWE at that point, it's got more eyes on it than ever. And it's just because a couple of people laughed. I don't know. What if she gave birth to a hand and then they actually did it. I think on a, I, I think I, I'm appreciating it on a very meta level. 
Yes. You know what I mean? Like I'm like Espe going, especially since you've been in there, you've been behind the curtain. You kind of understand how things work. And I'm and like, this is just happening to make you laugh. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> like that, that, That's my favorite part of any of this. <laughs> but you're right though. But you are right. Like, I think it's even more impressive that the Undertaker and Kane storyline could happen in an era that was so car crash television that like yeah. stuff was just moving and like, you know, titles were being swapped and half the stuff didn't matter. And you were still able to pull off something that actually did have a long-term play and actually mattered. Like, yeah. Cause I think you are right. Like if you watch a full episode of raw during the attitude era, chances are that it, it, it's not going to hold up the way you thought it would. Yeah. And that's, and people are so hypercritical of the product that they're seeing now People have always been hypercritical. Yeah. And I just think that this just goes back to that idea of like nostalgia is is more of an idea. It's a feeling. It's like it's the feeling of like, man, maybe I should get back together with that girl. And then you meet yes. up with her for coffee and you're like, oh, I can see why we broke up. Yeah. You have that moment where you're like, wow, I hate you. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> I don't like you at all. I don't like you as a person. Like I, yeah, why I never want to see your face again. <laughs> like, but- you're right. You do. You think back and you think of all the good times. So you think of how good you yeah. felt in the good moments. And you're yeah. like, I'd like to have those good times again. And you're like, oh, wait, there was a mm, bunch of other stuff. Though. Yeah, I forgot about the trade off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, you had uh, you 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 had your brush behind the curtain, too. I seen you uh, wearing the AEW blazer a little bit. Yeah. So that was. That was wild. And you probably have a very similar story to you working for WWE, but mm -hmm. I'd been doing a bunch of interviews last year with a lot of different AEW talent. Started with Chris Jericho, which led to Tony Khan, which led to the Bucks, Cody. I was just kind of doing one after the other and the interviews were doing great. It was, you know, a hot time to be doing those interviews with, with that talent. And then in July, I got a, a DM. I got a Twitter DM and they said, how would you feel about, or would you be interested in being part of our first show? Yeah, of course I would. You're like, Absolutely you mean, I would. Would I like to be a part of history in the <laughs> wrestling business? Like, that sounds like it would be a good thing for me. Yeah, I would like to do that, yes. So we went back and forth a little bit, and I said, can we talk about this on the phone? Like, let's, let's have a quick phone call. Because <laughs> you're so, on DM still. <laughs> you're like, this, I, this doesn't feel real if it's being done yeah, through like, DM. You, is, is this real? <laughs> we had a phone call, and... I said, so is this like an every week type of thing? And they said, well, it's going to be the first episode. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens from there. But we're planning out this first episode. It's in Washington, D.C. By the way, nobody knows that it's in Washington, D.C. So that's, you know, that's confidential information. Mm -hmm. I said, look, I, I honestly don't know if I'm able to do this with the current contract that I have. I was working for the Fox affiliate in Miami. I was hosting a, an entertainment show called Deco Drive. I'd been there for five years. Right. My YouTube channel was really starting to gain momentum. And I knew that there was, there was life outside of just being on that show in Miami. Mm -hmm. And I looked at this as an opportunity. I'm like, I can't do both. My contract will not allow me to do both. So I got to figure out like, what am I going to do here? And I went and had a very difficult conversation with my boss. And my boss was like, look, I know how much you love wrestling. I don't understand why you love it so much, but I know that you do. So go do this thing. I was like, okay, great. And my last day hosting Deco Drive was a Monday. But so I you quit the job. That. What's that? You quit the job. Yeah. Yeah. 
I didn't quit the job. I went from one job to another job. Well, you left it though. I'm saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, that, I'm not saying you're a quit. I'm, I'm saying like that shows like that's an amazing yeah, I, step to take. That's a step that a lot. I think that's that step that a lot of people would be afraid to take. And this, in this bigger, this part of a bigger conversation of like, I moved to America. I moved to a new country from Canada ten years ago. Right. And kind of like thought to myself, I always wanted to host a national show. I always wanted to be on that national scale. I took a job at a local news affiliate in Cleveland, being an entertainment reporter, which afforded me so many amazing opportunities. Covered the Oscars five times, the Grammys four times. I won four Emmys while I was there. I interviewed everybody. From there, I went to you know the local station in Miami, the Fox affiliate I was just talking about. I just kind of had this moment where I was like, I didn't move to a new country to just be a local news person. And I saw this as an opportunity to do something more. Mm -hmm. So my last day hosting that show was a Monday. Flew to DC that Tuesday, went to the production meeting. Wednesday, we were on Dynamite. By the way, those little things though, like in going to the production meeting, like as oh, a fan, so cool. like that's just the whole, every minute of it just has to be like so much fun. It was very cool. Like I sat in the first ever production meeting for Dynamite. Right. And at the front of the room was Cody and Kenny and the Bucks and Tony, like all sitting there at like a, you know, like a head table, kind of like you're at a wedding. And the rest of us were sitting around these like circular tables with, you know, the rundown in front of us. And we're going down, going through the rundown, like se segment by segment by segment. And then it, you know, finally came to my segment and I was like, <laughs> I have a segment. <laughs> yeah. Cody's running the meeting and he like looks over at me. He's like, yeah. So uh, then this next segment here, we've got Jay and silent Bob and uh, our man CBV over here is going to be uh, running that. That's me. <laughs> I'm a, okay. That's me. Okay. Great. <laughs> yeah. It was all very, very cool. And to be part of the first wrestling show on TNT in almost 20 years as a massive wrestling fan, yeah, it was a really, really cool thing. And I didn't expect anything more from it. And then a few weeks later, I happened to be on the episode in Charleston, South Carolina with the Rock and Roll Express, who then got beat up by a very scary Santana and Ortiz. Sure. It was just so cool yeah. to be part of all of that. And are you like, are you the type that it's easy to go like, you know what? Like, even if this isn't happening every single week, like just to be a part of this stuff, even if it were to just happen twice, like that's twice. That's amazing. This is so cool. Or are you like, as much as I want to be that person, ah, I got, now I got the itch. Now you made me want it more. I want to, I, I want to, I want to do it again. I want to do it again. Well, but we're, I mean, we're living in such a strange time right now that I don't even know if it's possible. Right. Like, these last eight months have been so weird as a wrestling fan watching, you know, fanless wrestling. So I don't know what's possible there, but you know, before COVID, I was just like, I'm so glad I got to experience that. It made me hungry not to be on dynamite more, but it made me hungry to like want to be on national television more. I've always I've been a TV host for 15 years of my career. And that's my entire career, by the way. So I've been a <laughs> TV host for my entire career, always reaching for that next thing. So this really lit a fire under me to go, oh yeah, national I want to TV. Do more. Yeah. I want, which is exactly why I moved to Los Angeles moved to Los Angeles four months ago because if you're a TV host and you're an entertainment reporter, this is where stuff happens. Right, right. So where are you looking toward? Do you, do you, do you see yourself, you know, getting on one of the entertainment shows? Is that, is that where you see yourself, the um, Mario Lopez, if you will, uh, route? Yeah. 
I, I, I mean, those shows I feel like are dying a very slow, painful death. And that's, yeah. that's nothing against any of those shows. I just feel like it's TV, they, right? They, they, they served a real purpose yeah. when the internet was in its infancy and you know, when the internet didn't exist. Sure. I, I would absolutely love to be a correspondent for E or extra or access Hollywood, but I'd also love to host a show that really showcases all the things that I love doing, which is like pretty much anything. I, I just posted a video where it's like me swimming with alligators, swimming with sharks, bungee jumping, skydiving. I tried out for the Miami Marlins and I tried out for the Florida Panthers and I learned how to hike a football with the Miami Dolphins. Like I love learning how to do new stuff and I don't ever feel uncomfortable in any sort of new situation. So I want a show like that where I can go in and go, let me just, let me just do everything. I love that. So that's the show we're selling. That's it. Chris Van Fleet does a whole bunch there of stuff. I, I would watch that show because I'm not doing any of it. I was like, uh, I saw you post a video uh, bungee jumping where you said, uh, what did you say about fear? Said, and Fear doesn't prevent you from dying. Right. Fear prevents you from living. Right. And I was like, yeah, but I'm not jumping off a bridge. That's what well, I why said. Not? That's what I said. When I looked at that, I was like, cool. Yeah, but I'm staying on the ground, Chris. I'm not jumping off N the bridge. This is the whole reason. I'm actually <laughs> going to post that entire bungee jump video on my yeah. YouTube channel. Actually, by, maybe by the time this uh, video or uh, this interview drops, it'll be out. Yeah. But I, I want to put those out there to show people that like anything's possible. It, it is entirely possible to do absolutely everything in this world. And the only person that's standing in the way is you. That is true. And I mean, I, I feel like you must feel that now more than ever. When you look at the stuff that you've accomplished and the things that you've gotten to do and 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 everything like it just it must just feed itself where you're going like well if this is possible then that's possible if that's possible then that must be possible and you just keep it just keeps going and going and going that that is that's exactly it and it was actually a conversation i had with tyler perry that really shifted my thinking and i've interviewed him you know many 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 times and we developed a, a friendship and i remember he was like so you know so what are you doing and i told him what i was doing I'm hosting this show in Miami. It's been great. I just traveled to Paris and I was in London before that. I'm in LA next week. And I just started this fishing company. I, I love bass fishing. I started this fishing company. He's like, yeah, but like, what else are you doing? And I'm like, what do you mean? Hey, he's like, <laughs> he's like, you got to dream bigger. I'm like, huh? And at first I was like, what do you mean? I got to dream bigger. Like I'm already doing all these things. I'm doing the things I want to do. And then it started to hit me. It's like, those are good accomplishments on like this level. Right. But he's saying the only thing stopping you from being at this level to this awesome level up here is you dream bigger. And I'm like, wow. And that's, he's one of the main reasons that I'm living in Los Angeles now because I'm dreaming bigger. Right. Cause you've got this thing. You don't, you didn't move to Los Angeles with any guarantees, right? No, right. My my main thing right now is YouTube and the podcast. Right now, I'm auditioning for other things, and it's, I mean, it's obviously a tough time right now with COVID. But no, I didn't. I didn't move here for a job. I moved here because I knew that the jobs were here. Right. You moved for opportunity. Yes. Yeah. And I moved to create the opportunities. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Because you have to. Yeah. That's the reality of it. Right. So that's what you got to do. You asked me about bucket list interviews. I'll ask you the same thing. I mean, I feel like uh, you've done a very good job. You know, I've always heard that vague goals get vague results. Uh, clearly, <laughs> clearly uh, you have very specific goals because you match them. You know, I mean, I remember, I think it was last year 
you doing the uh, what was it, fifty wrestlers in in the year, or and you ended up doubling it or something like that? Yeah, that's exactly it. I said yeah. I wanted to do fifty because the year before I did forty, mm-hmm. and like the YouTube thing kind of was just an accident. Like I was just putting these YouTube videos up because I wanted them to live somewhere. We were doing these, you know, 15, 20 minute interviews and only airing 10 or 15 seconds on TV. So I was putting them on my YouTube channel just so they could live somewhere. And two years ago, I'm like, well, what if I actually started going out of my way and doing these interviews? What if there was an indie show with a big star and I drove and made that interview happen? So that's when, you know, that's when the vague goals get vague results really started becoming a thing. In terms of bucket list interviews, the, the two that were at the very top of the list mm-hmm. were The Rock. Mm-hmm. And I've been able to interview The Rock. This is now a running joke. Mm-hmm. I've interviewed The Rock nine times. Not that I'm counting. Like <laughs> a picture on my wall here of uh, one of our interviews, and he autographed a magazine cover right before uh, WrestleMania 28. Awesome. Yeah, WrestleMania 28. Looking at it over there. Uh, number two was Tom Cruise. So after I did The Rock and I was able to do that interview with The Rock in 2012 and I got The Rock backstage at Raw. It was like when That's he was building, awesome. you know, to the, to the Cena thing. It was really before he was The Rock that we know now. Like he was just on the cusp of making like that really big shift in his career. He was just about to film G.I. Joe 2 or I think it was just promoting G.I. Joe 2. And then things really took off, you know, right after that. So it was Rock and Tom Cruise and both of them, even though they're completely different people and in completely different genres, they are very similar in a lot of the things that they do. And I learned a lot from my short interactions with both of them. And number one is like, be present. Both of them are so incredibly present in that moment. And you've experienced this a lot of times in the interviews you've done. They look you in the eye. They make you feel like you're an important person. They make you feel like you're the most important person in that moment. Yeah. Even though with my interview with Tom Cruise, we were on a red carpet. It was in Paris. There were thousands of people shouting his name and taking photos. And it was as if it was just me and him had met in like a, a random hallway. And he like looked me in the eye and had this great conversation with me. And yeah, and they're also like super charismatic. Like both of them have this charisma that oozes out of them so much so that it makes you more charismatic just by being in their presence. Right. You're almost like, if you want to start this cult, we could start this cult. We could do it. I'll yeah, join. Whatever, dude, whatever, whatever you want to tell cult. me. Whatever you want to say. Yeah, I'm, I'm following you, dude. You're, yeah, it is. It's that uh, presidential energy where it's like all of a sudden you're at the center of attention and you're like, oh my God, did we just make a connection? And then they're on to the next yeah. person and you're like, wait, I think we're best friends. I think. Have you ever, have you ever had a conversation with a president? No, I've. I like that you had to think about that. Well, huh. I, think, I mean, I feel like you'd know if you met a president. Well, the, not I definitely never met a sitting president. But like, I was yeah, trying I mean, to think if I ever interviewed Trump, because I know uh, like he did Opie and Anthony a few times, but I don't, I don't think I've ever interviewed him. I was at an event last year, and Bill Clinton was making his rounds, mm-hmm. and he happened to be next to me, and I'm like, well. I got to take this opportunity. So I, I shook his hand and my goodness, you want to talk about presidential energy. <laughs> it was, he's the best at that. Yeah. Like he is just the absolute best at making you feel so significant in that moment. That's what I've always heard about him. I mean, any, I, that's like the, one of the things that like is his legend is that he will walk into a room and for one moment, he will make everybody in that room feel like this is all about you. 
And it was so funny because you could see the secret service around him, you know, just kind of like keeping an eye on what was going on around them, around Bill. And he was kind of making his way, you know, having these little conversations and one conversation ended and I was just like, oh, I got to shake his hand. Mm -hmm. So I shook his hand just thinking like, oh, you know, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And then I thought that'd be the end of the conversation. And he kept holding my hand during like the handshake. And he's like, oh, so where are you from? I, uh, um, um, so then we have this conversation. It was like, it was a moment where I, I wasn't really prepared. Right. And, you know, me and you have, we've interviewed a lot of famous people, right. but it was one of those moments where I, I wasn't prepared for what was going to happen. And then it ended up turning into like a 10 minute conversation. And I felt like, like, why are you still talking? This is amazing, but why are you still talking to me? <laughs> this is a party that like Oprah was at and like all these other like huge names. And I'm like, you're, thank you. Yeah. But this is so strange. I feel like 30 seconds in, I'd be like, I, in my head, I'd be thinking he's got to leave because I've run out of stuff. Like I don't have, <laughs> this is not, this, I, uh, I'm done. Part of me was thinking like secret service was just going to come in and be like, I, <laughs> yeah. yeah like they're not gonna believe that this is his choice they're gonna all right leave, <laughs> leave the president alone whoever you are <laughs> like, I, I was just he wouldn't let go <laughs> well chris it's been a pleasure uh i'm glad we finally did this um if you go over to chris van vliet's youtube channel not only will you find just an immense library of great wrestling interviews. Do you ever think to yourself, like as you're talking to somebody and not that it has anything to do with you, I'm not asking from an ego perspective, but like I've, I've interviewed people, wrestlers specifically, and they'll be telling me stories and I'm sitting there going like, and maybe it's just because I think of wrestling so highly, but I'm going like, this is a historical document. This yes. interview that's happening right now is a historical document. Not, you can cut me out of it completely. Just, this stuff that this person is giving me right now is this is history. This is so yeah. important that this exists. I don't know about important that it exists. I, but, but there's certain moments where someone's telling me a story and I'm like, this is the story has never been told publicly. Yeah. And, and I'm hearing this. Like when Batista told me the, the story behind, give me what I want. Mm -hmm. And you know, I was, I was interviewing him for the Stuber junket and I was just like, did you realize in that moment that give me what I want was going to turn into a meme? He's like, no, I forgot what I was saying. <laughs> and, we were, and we were trying to drive at this one point and Triple H was supposed to end up saying something and I couldn't remember what I needed to say to have him get to that point. So I just kept saying, give me what I want. Give me what I want. That's great. Then I had a moment with Hogan and it wasn't on camera and I wish it was. I, I had to tell him this and I tell The Rock this frequently. I say, you know, WrestleMania 18 is my favorite match of all time. Rock Hogan, my favorite match of all time. I was there. I was in the 16th row and the crowd was you know, going bonkers. And I, I remember when I told Rock that he goes, yeah, who are you cheering for? <laughs> I, was, I was cheering for Hogan. He's like, yeah, me too. <laughs> but I asked Hogan, it was, so this is even crazy for this to be a sentence. Sure. It was an interview with Hogan and Flair at the same time. They were right. They were doing this like Q and A panel at the Hard Rock Casino in Hollywood, Florida, being moderated by Eric Bischoff. But I was going to get Hogan and Flair at the same time. So we're in this hotel room where we were going to do this interview with Hogan. We were waiting for Flair to like come up the elevator and come into the room. So we had like you know two minutes. Mm -hmm. So I said to Hogan, favorite match of all time. I said I gotta know though. 
did you realize that the NWO was going to turn on you? He goes, oh, brother, I had no idea. <laughs> uh, the referee just told me to stay in the ring. I thought that was strange because Rock had won the match, but they just told me to stay in the ring. And sure enough, he had no idea what was going to happen. Mike Chioda just told him, stay in the ring, stay in the ring. And that's when the NWO came out. And he said that Vince saw the reaction that he got during that match and said, we got to turn him face. We got to have him in the red and yellow. I love that. I mean, and so that's, then, that's not only, not only did the NWO turn on him when he gets backstage, yeah. Vince goes, do you have any red and yellow? And he's like, I haven't worn that in years. <laughs> and he goes, Vince lent me his private jet had me fly from Toronto to Tampa. I found some box in my attic, which I hadn't looked at in years, grabbed the gear, hoped it would fit, got back on the jet, and then went the next day to Montreal for Raw. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah, that is, I mean, I just love that it's WrestleMania and you're just so like reading the crowd and just feeling it that you're like, the turn has to happen right now. I, I couldn't believe that story. And if I ever interview Hogan again, I need him to tell this story on camera. But I, I just, it, well, it meant so much to me because that's my favorite match. Yeah. It meant so much to me because I was there. And now I'm learning this information from the guy in the match that Crazy. nobody else knows. And if I interview Hogan before you, I just steal the story right from you. And Please. I guess I, Please. I guess. go ahead. <laughs> well, what I was saying was there's all these uh, wrestling interviews on Chris Van Fleet's YouTube channel, but. You can also find an interview with yours truly uh, if you go over to Chris Van Vliet's YouTube channel. You can also get him uh, on the Chris Van Vliet Show podcast uh, if you're an audio listener. Um, and uh, anything else? Anything that I'm missing? I know you're a busy guy. I know you got the Tyler Perry dreams. Yeah, just dreaming bigger, right? Yeah. Yeah, wherever you're listening to this, you can find my podcast. So, Sam, thank you. Thank you. I, I, you know, I love being able to do interviews in person. It's obviously a strange time right now. So we weren't able to do this in person, but I look forward to being able to shake your hand in person again, hopefully someday soon. Yes. And, you know, while I enjoy doing interviews in person, I also love staying in my house. Uh, this thing has made me more of a hermit than ever. Uh, so hopefully <laughs> one day we will do an interview in person and it will take place with you in my house. Done. Perfect. I'd love to come to your house. Perfect. Perfect. Come on over. <laughs> I can I can force you to eat weird foods. That's right. We'll do all kinds of content. <laughs> Even though weird foods to you are apple pie and spaghetti. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A hamburger would do it. Like, oh, what is that? Thank you, Chris. No, thank you. Thanks for listening. Follow at Not Sam on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Rate, review, and subscribe. This has been Not Sam Wrestling. Not Sam Wrestling.